Well, how's everybody doing this morning? You made it through Christmas holidays? I'm sure you all overindulged. I know I did. Now, Mimi has made us all these wonderful vests. <coughs> and she took measurements for them about three months ago. And then as we were putting them on, it's like, oh, I think I've put on weight in three months. But not as bad as Brandon. He couldn't get his done up, but he's not here today to make fun of him in person. So you have to relay to him that I made fun of him in service this morning. Well, we've been in the series for December called Name Changer. And it's all been based around, throughout the Bible, we see God changing people's names. And as he changes their names, he changes their destiny. And you know, God is still in the name-changing business. He may not be changing your name from Martha or Mary to whatever, but he changes your nature. And what has defined you throughout your life doesn't have to be what continues to define you. You can have your life defined by Jesus and the work that he has poured out for us. And so we first looked at Jacob, and his name was changed from Jacob, meaning deceiver or heal, and God changed it to Israel, which means God prevails. And the story of his life follows his name. He grows up being a deceiver. He cheats his brother Esau out of his birthright. Then he cheats him out of his blessing. And he continues on along that path until he has an encounter with God. And it completely changes his life. He sees the angels going up into heaven and coming down. And he says, oh my goodness, God has been in this place. And I wasn't even aware that he was here. And I love that because so many times as we're walking through our lives, we can forget that God is present right here where we are. That's one of his covenant names. The Lord is here. Not the Lord is there. The Lord is distance. And I always, I always like how Elijah, when he was taking on the prophets of Baal, and they're trying to call down fire from heaven, and they're cutting themselves, and they're singing their songs, and nothing's happening. And Elijah stands off and says, well, maybe he's off on a trip. Or maybe he's off in the bathroom. And I love that because he's mocking them because the opposite of our God is true. He's always present. One of his natures is that he's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. So wherever you find yourself, there is God. And so how many times have we walked through situations in our lives without realizing, oh my goodness, God is here. And if God is here, it doesn't have to stay this way. Things can change. And that's exactly what happened to Jacob. His name gets changed years after his nature was changed. God changed him inside before he changed him outside. And so he went off into exile running from his brother and God blesses him while he's under an unfair boss who's trying to cheat him, keeps changing his wages, keeps changing the wife he wants to marry, and God still continues to bless him in spite of his name because he changed his nature inside first. And you know what? That's exactly what happened when you received Jesus. Your nature was changed and he's going to allow you to walk out that nature change and he begins to call you a different name. And so he changes Jacob to Israel, which means God prevails. And then we explored the name change of Naomi. Now, Naomi left the land that she was living in, the promised land that God had led them to. She left with her husband, Elimelech, and her kids, and things just go bad. Her husband dies, her kids die, and then when she comes back to the land of promise, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara, which means bitter. 
And so she left the land of Israel with the name of kindness and beauty, and she came back with a bitter heart. And if we follow through the the story of Naomi, we can find that that happens to us oftentimes. The things that are going on around us, we allow to get on the inside of us. Instead of beauty and kindness coming out into the situation, we allow bitterness and disappointment. And so we have to guard our hearts and realize there's things that want to change us and we don't have to let them. We can have the Jacob to Israel transformation instead of the Naomi to Mara transformation. And then last week, we are looking at the most famous one, and that is the change from Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. And it's just great if you look at the definitions of their name. Abram went from my father as exalted to being the father of many nations, the very thing that he was not going to be. He had no legitimate children. Him and his wife could not have kids. It was because of Sarah. And so he was not going to have any children. But yet God changes his name to the father of many nations. you got to think of how weird that must have been for him introducing himself. Hi, I'm the father of many nations. Oh, really? How many kids do you have? Well, well, technically none. But his name was in alignment with the blessing that God had spoken over him 24 years before the transformation. God spoke over him and said, I will make you great. I will make your descendants plentiful. There'll be kings coming from your line, Abraham. And 24 years ain't got nothing. But then God changes his name and his words begin to line up with the destiny that God had for him. How many times are we speaking words that are contrary to what God has spoken over us? We need to speak his blessing. We need to speak his promises. We need to align our mouths with his mouth. Because when agreement comes together, amazing things happen. Isn't that what he said? That if two or three of you uh, agree on anything as touching anything on earth, it shall be done for you? Well, how much more you and God getting in agreement. You know, it's hard to find another person to be in agreement with, but you can always get in agreement with God because he always agrees with his word. His word stands true forever. And he changed Sarah from princess, or my princess, to noblewoman. Gave her a strong name. And once he did that, man, things begin to change. But I have to tell you, it was not because the definition of their name changed. And last week we explored that the very thing that he inserted into their name in both of them was the word hey, which means behold grace. What took place in the lives of Abraham and Sarah was he inserted himself, a very part of his nature, he inserted it into their names and what was unfruitful became fruitful. What was dead came to life. But guess what you received in Jesus? Grace. Just like Abraham and Sarah. Now we could continue on with this series. We could move to the New Testament. We could talk about Saul's transformation from Saul to Paul, which his name I find interesting that the definition means small. And that's how Paul was trying to live his life after he had an encounter with God. He says, when I am weak, then God is strong. 
And so Paul changed his perspective from being the one that is desired. And he, he talks about himself. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I went to the right schools. I was born from the right tribe. I've been come out of everything that was perfect. I should be the best. Paul changed from what was be desired to making himself small. For when you make yourself small, you let God be magnified. Now we're not talking about false humility living in poverty and sickness because you think that humbles you, that's a load of garbage. That is not Christianity. Throughout the Bible, we look at people that God has taken from poverty and made them in bl be blessed and be rich. We've seen God take people from sickness and move them to health. So don't buy into that religion that tells you that's humility to bring yourself low. That's not what Paul was saying. He's saying, I'm going to push myself out of the way so that God can be glorified. You know, we could look at the transformation, I like this one, it's from Joseph to Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. What a name to have. They, this name was given to Barnabas. He didn't do this to himself, but everybody recognized, you know, whenever I'm with Barnabas, I just feel so encouraged. And you know, I think he was the perfect person to be traveling with Paul when he started out. Paul's on a journey from being a murderer to a minister. What does he need in the middle of the journey? A little bit of encouragement. So God partners him up with the son of encouragement. And there's just so many of, more of these throughout the Bible that we could explore. But what really stood out to me is when God transformed Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah, he inserted his grace. And what I believe we need to end this year with and start next year with is a reminder of the grace of God and His goodness in your life. And we really need to ask ourselves this question, what is the message of the New Testament? If you think about this for a bit, and I started to think about the answers that I've heard from people, and I even went and I stopped and I asked my own son, a six-year-old, because you get straight answers from children. And I said, well, what is the message of the Bible? And you want to know what his response was? And it lined up with what I see a lot. That God sent Jesus to die for our sins. And that seems like such a great answer. And I'm almost tempted to agree with it. But as I thought about it more, that that is not the message of the New Testament, but a byproduct of the message of the New Testament. If we go over to John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world. Not because the sin of the world was great, he sent Jesus. Not because there was a problem that needed to be solved, and there was. As the saying goes, you owed a debt you could not pay, and he paid a debt he did not owe, but he did, that was not the reason why he came. That was just the method he used to fulfill the message. The message was that God looked down and he loved his creation. He loved his sons and daughters so much that he sent Jesus. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the next verse says, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world. Oh my goodness. So much of Christianity needs to read that verse again and read it slowly. God did not come into the world to judge the world for its sin. What did he come into the world to do? But to save the world through him. But yet so much of Christianity is focused on pointing out people's faults and why we can't fellowship with them and why we can't be with them because they'll corrupt us because they're so evil. No, God did not come to the world to judge it. He came to save it. God is not the God of wrath and judgment. He's the God of love and grace. 
You need to go back and read the New Testament again if your perspective has gotten changed. God did not come to judge. Now, what does a judge do? A judge sits on his, in, in the court, and they bring a case towards him, and then they present the evidence, and he weighs the merits against what the law says. And so it all depends about what the law of the land is. But here's what Jesus was call, called to do. It says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. The law didn't come through Jesus. He didn't come to establish our sins. He came to free us from them because of his love. And so grace can be defined as his undeserved or his unmerited favor to us. It's not something we work to obtain, so he doesn't look at how good you've been, though a lot of people would like that. Oh God, I've been good today. Please mark another one down on the board for me. And please forget about the other side of the board, God. I know your mercy has gone over that, but please look at my goodness. You know, we have no problem taking credit for when we've been good, and we want everybody to ignore when we've been bad. Well, you know what? God ignores them both and looks at Jesus. And so he doesn't judge you based upon what you have done or what you haven't done. He bases his judgment upon you based on what Jesus has done. We call it the rose-colored glasses. When God sent Jesus, he put on the glasses and he looks down and all he sees is the blood of Jesus on you. It has paid the price. It can also be defined as his empowerment upon you. So his grace came through Jesus. And guess where you've been placed? When you received Jesus, you got placed in him. It says you've been made one with him. You've been raised up and seated together with him in heavenly places. So if he is grace and truth, guess what surrounds you every day? Grace and truth. So we're going to focus on grace for the next few weeks. Because it's always good for us to remind ourselves about what really is important about the Bible. We need to remember what is the mountains and not the molehills. And so I want to start a series this morning called, What is So Amazing About Grace? You know, we've all heard the song sung a million times, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Now, they estimate that that song is sung about 10 million times annually. So that works out to 27,397 times a day. So there was a lot of times that that was sung already this morning. We didn't sing it this morning, though I was asked several years ago, what is your favorite hymn? And I had to think about it for a second, and I came back to this one, because this is the message of the gospel. Amazing grace. It better sound sweet to you. If it doesn't sound sweet to you, you need to go back and take another look at grace and remember, oh right, there's so many things God could have judged me for but chose not to. He sent grace instead. Now this song, I want to explore it a little bit this morning. It was written by a man named John Newton and he was born in 1725. So it's been around for quite a while. And what was it that led him to write such a, such a song that would become such a staple in Christianity? What transpired in John Newton's life that when he looked back, he said, oh my goodness, grace, where would I be without grace? So I want to tell you a little bit about his story this morning. Now they've written books on this. They've made movies about it, and some of them are good. Some of them are a little weird. But this is what I've compiled together from different facts about his life. He was born into a family... 
His father's name was John Newton Sr., and he was a shipmaster. His mother's name was Elizabeth Seacliff, and she was what was known as a nonconformist. Now, that meant that she was in open rebellion against the Church of England, or in other words, the monarchy. And so this could have meant that she was an atheist, or it could have simply meant that she was a Methodist or a Puritan. We don't really know. It doesn't, the story doesn't really tell us other than that she was a nonconformist. And so that's the household that he grew up in. And at the age of 11, he followed his father into the shipping trade and went out onto the sea. Now, I cannot imagine sending my oldest son Harrison in five years to go live out on the sea. But apparently that's what they did back then. <laughs> so at the age of 11, he went to the sea with his father and he went on six different voyages with him until his father decided, you know, I just had enough of the sea. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm retiring. And he said, well, you know, I've kind of enjoyed this life, so I'm going to continue on in it. Well, he should have retired with his father because what transpires next is nothing but sorrow and not so happiness. He heads out onto the sea with another merchant vessel and he sails around for a while until... He's pressed into service with the Royal Navy. Now, what does that mean? During this season, we have colonialism going on all over the world. And so the, the British and the French and the Spanish and the Portuguese are all fighting each other in the seas, trying to, to explore new territories, to take over more lands. And so the Royal Navy would be out there and they'd get into a skirmish with another country or maybe even pirates, and they would lose people. And they'd get to the point where it's like, we're not going to be able to operate the ship anymore unless we get some more crew. So they would stop another vessel that would be going by and be like, guess what, boy, you just joined the Navy. And so that's what happened to John Newton. He was pressed into service in the Royal Navy. And what we know about from his writings, he hated serving in the Royal Navy. And so he sailed around on the ship for a while with the Royal Navy and decided, this is not the life for me. But when you're pressed into service, it basically you just become a slave to the crown. You don't say, okay, I'm, I'm done with the Navy, and you leave. So he decided one day, I'm going AWOL. I'm deserting. I'm getting out of here. And he tried to take off, and they caught him pretty quickly. He didn't get very far. And they took him back up onto the ship. They brought all 350 sailors that were on the ship. They stripped him down. They tied him to the mast, and they gave him eight dozen lashes and then threw him in the, in the prison, in uh, the jail cell inside the ship. And there he sat, rotting in a hole for a while. And according to his diary, this is when he decided, when I get out of here, the captain, he's a gonna die. <laughs> and then the longer he sat there, he's like, well, you know, I don't think I can get to the captain. Maybe I'm the one that needs to die. And he found himself in a pit of despair contemplating suicide. And it went along this way for a while, rotting in the hole. The captain didn't trust him to get back out and work on the ship. And then he came across a slaving ship and thought, you know what? I should sell him to the slaving ship. And so he essentially becomes a slave. He goes on the slaving ship for a while, absolutely hates it. They don't like him. And so they sell him to a slave owner in West Africa, and he becomes the slave of his wife, who her name was Princess Peye, and she was from a, a tribe in Western, uh, in Western Africa in the Sierra Leone area, and she, he became her slave, and she was very abusive to him, and beat him every day, and so his life is not looking rosy. It's not looking like, amazing grace, how sweet the sound is looking like, oh my goodness, can this get any worse? Eventually, word gets back to his father that he's been placed into slavery, and so he sends a ship to retrieve him. And on their voyage back, 
from freeing him from slavery, the ship encounters a storm. And things are looking even worse now. At least I was alive in slavery, but here we are off the coast of Ireland about to die in this ship. The ship hits the rocks, it breaks open, and him and a friend tie themselves to the side of the ship so that they won't get swept over, overboard. And in his moment of despair, he cries out, Lord, have mercy on me. Now, something you should know about John Newton is that he's not been a good old Christian boy. If his mother was a Methodist, he didn't follow her into it because he's known amongst his crews for mocking anyone who believes in God and anyone who is a Christian. So for this moment, for him to stop and say, God, have mercy on me, you know he's hit the bottom. He's gone as far as he can go. Lord, have mercy on me. And as the story goes, the side of the ship had been broken open, and in the midst of the storm, all of a sudden the ship heaved, and all the cargo slid and plugged the hole, and the ship drifted, the ship drifted to shore, and they were saved. And this was the start of John Newton's progress towards Christianity. It was not like, oh, God saved me, let's, let's do something good with it. No, he started thinking about all these questions, and the thought that plagued him from this time on is, Am I really deserving of God's mercy and grace? And so for the next 10 years, he actually operated as a slaver. He started out as a, the first mate on a slave ship, eventually rose to the rank of captain, and for the next nine years, took people to slavery in the new world and all around the world. So it's not like his life was transformed in a minute, but each day he was plagued by that thought, Am I really worthy of God's mercy and grace? And how many people I've met that are in that same position, they don't know if they really deserve the gift that God has given. Guess what? It's not about what you deserve. His grace is not based upon your merits. And so finally, after nine years, he decided, you know what? My desire to follow God is greater than my desire to stay at sea. And so he leaves the shipping industry and the slaving industry and goes, begins to study to be a minister. But then he finds out that nobody wants him because he's too evangelistic. Now, wouldn't that be a nice problem to have? That he likes people too much and he's too charismatic for the Anglican church. But eventually he finds a, a man who's willing to sponsor him and they send him to this small little church in Olenny, Buckhamshire, England where 2,500 people live in the town. And the, 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 the industry of this town is that they make lace of all things. And it was a very poor town and they figured there's nowhere else worse that we could send him. But you know what happens? is he begins to think more about the grace of God and the mercy of God. And a joy begins to rise up in his heart and people begin to start showing up in his church. And his church keeps growing and growing and they keep adding on to his building. And they said the thing that was different about his preaching compared to what you'd hear the other priests and bishops is that he was willing to say, I have been flawed in my life but thank God for his grace. You know what? You don't have to be ashamed of your shortcomings. Man, God can use those scars to lead other people to his grace. 
And so as God began to fill his church, a poet by the name of William Cowper, a famous English poet, began to attend his church. And they began to get together and they would write these poems, which became uh, the Oleni hymns, is what they would call them. And they weren't set to music like we have today. And so on 1773, on the New Year's Day message, John Newton stood up and gave this poem. It says, Amazing Grace... How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Said, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Think about that. He said it was grace that taught his heart. And the word for fear that you get out of the Bible is the word to be in awe and reverence of God. It was his grace that taught him to reverence God. Not his fear of God. Not the wrath of God. But the grace of God taught his heart to be in reverence. And when he grabbed onto his grace, his fears on this earth faded away. It says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. And if you think about the story I just told you, that is very much true. But he says, tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Whatever you've been through in your life, look back and you will see the footprints of God's grace bringing you through. And guess what? His grace is not finished with you. It will lead you on into your future. Cling to the grace of God and let Him transform your life. He says, the Lord has promised good to me, and his word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. And I wish some modern Christians would get a hold of this. This is a guy from the 1700s saying, my goodness, God will provide, and God will protect you. His grace will always be with you. It says, yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow and the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will forever be mine. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when We've first begun. The grace of God doesn't end here on this earth. It goes forevermore. So he gave that message in 1773 on New Year's Day. It was written down in the Oleni hymns and published and taken around the world. Eventually, it was set to music to the tune of New Britain, which I think is really funny. You know, they would take all of these great scripture-based hymns and they would put them to modern pub songs. <laughs> and I think about all the people who criticize modern, modern music today and they, and they think, well, if it sounds so much like the world, it can't be of God. My goodness, the hymns you love were set to pub songs. And so he, it gets set to the tune of New Britain and it becomes the song of the Second Great Awakening as missionaries and evangelists take the gospel across North America on horseback by people like D.L. Moody. And they sing this song, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost 
But now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And so a hundred years after it's written, it actually becomes popular. You know, you think about some of the things that you're doing that maybe you have to die for them to be successful. Let's hope it doesn't get to that. But that's what happened with John Newton. It became infinitely more popular years and years after his death because it was inspired by the grace of God. And it never ends. The grace of God will always be at work in our lives. So let's get back to the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, But God, who is so rich in mercy. I love when he adds unneeded words. You know, if you just say that he's rich in mercy, that's great. But he's not just rich in mercy. He's so rich in mercy. And he loved us so much, not just a little. It says that even though we were dead because of our sins, not because of our sins, in spite of our sins. I love that. It's not because we were sinners that love came. It's in spite of it. And it says he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. I love Colossians. It says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive Christ? Through grace. So how would you, should you continue to walk? Walk in his grace. I love the next verse. It says, let your roots go down into him. And let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught. And you will overflow with thankfulness. My goodness. Back to Ephesians. It says, it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ... And he seated us with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. If grace and truth came with Jesus and he's full of grace and truth and that's where you've been united together with him, grace and truth surrounds you now. And the reason why he raised us up, united us with Jesus was verse 7. So... God can point to us in the future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us. My goodness. God is so good. It says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you have done, so none of us can boast about it. You have been saved by grace. So what is so amazing about grace? Well, the Bible tells us the Lord is gracious, that he's the giver of grace, that he's the God of all grace, that his throne is a throne of grace. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of grace. Our message is called the gospel of the grace of God and the word of his grace. The prophets of old prophesied of the grace that should come to us, and this grace came by Jesus. Jesus was full of grace, and from his fullness we have received one grace after another. It was by grace that Jesus tasted death for every man. We are told to continue in grace, to abound in grace, to be strong in grace, to grow in grace. The word of God speaks of great grace, the abundance of grace, the exceeding grace of God, the glory of his grace, the riches of his grace, the exceeding riches of his grace, the dispensation 
dispensation of the grace of God, the gift of the grace of God, the grace of life, the manifold grace of God, and the true grace of God, and that's just about a quarter of the verses that have to do with grace. What is so amazing about the grace of God? It's because that's what surrounds God every day. It's what motivates His decision-making. His grace is tied to His love. You never find them separated. So what's so amazing about grace? It's how God thinks about you every day. So regardless of what the enemy tells you, of how rotten you've been or whatever, he's a liar. God doesn't see you that way. He sees you through the eyes of grace. So what is so amazing about grace? It's the heartbeat of God. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to look at all the different aspects of grace. We're going to look at his saving grace, his sanctifying grace. We're going to look at all the different aspects of it because it's the reason he sent Jesus. Because of his grace. Because of his love. Now maybe you've been watching us this morning via the internet and you haven't had your introduction with God. Don't wait another moment. Maybe you're here in this place and you haven't made Jesus the Lord of your life. It's not about joining a church. It's not about accepting a creed or a doctrine. It's about just opening your heart up to the grace of God and letting Him transform your life. So if that's you that I'm talking to this morning, go ahead and pray this prayer with us this morning. Father, we receive Jesus. We thank You for His gift. We thank You for His grace. I receive him now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with us this morning, go ahead and get in contact with us. We'd love to get you hooked up with a good church in your area and get some resources too. And same to you, if you prayed that this morning with us, we have some gifts we'd love to give you. And just know that this is just the beginning. You start with grace and then you continue with it. It will surround you every day of your life. But just like Jacob said, God was in this place and I didn't even know it. Stop, listen, and say, God, I know you're here. Lead me by your grace. You guys are blessed. Have a wonderful new year. We will see you in 2019. Let's have some coffee and fellowship. <laughs>